This morning I have the opportunity to share some thoughts that I have on Psalm 21 with you this morning. And I hope that God speaks through them in some way. I remember sitting on a bus in my 12th year of high school. Not 12 years in high school, but grade 12. (laughs) Follow me? Makes sense? Yeah? Okay, good. (laughs) Who do you think I am that I needed 12 years? Okay. (laughs) We were traveling on our very last game it was rugby, and we were traveling in the. Uh, we were traveling to face a team in the final game of the championships. Okay, we were going there. We were a school of about 400 people, but because of our location being remote and not near any other schools, we had to travel farther distances to play large schools of two to three thousand. I know for some of you that might be just called school, but for us that was a big, big school. And so we would be traveling to play them. If we were scheduled to play a team that we had a chance of beating, the bus ride was pretty typical to what you would think. You know, you would be playing music and you would be excited and cheering and making jokes because you're like, we've got this. This is a good game. We're we're here. We're going to win. We're not going to stress about it. But because we faced so many schools that were much larger than us, there were often games where we thought, we're probably going to be demolished in the next hour. Um, And so our bus ride would look very different. It would look something like this. We would start by being excited. We would have music going. We would be joking, cheering. But about halfway through the drive, it would get really quiet like eerily quiet. We would, I think it kind of hit us all at the exact same moment just how difficult this game was going to be. You know, we would kind of be thinking or telling ourselves, you know, this school, they're much bigger than us. We have no chance. That student got a scholarship in the States. We're done. They have better trainers. They have better equipment than us. It's going to be bad. I mean, true story, we had awful equipment and no trainers. Um, We had a very small gym to work out in, and so instead of working out in our gym that had, I think, just some weights in it, we would jog five kilometers to a dirt road, and we would push my friend's truck up and down the road. I'm not even kidding. That's for, that's, I'm serious. Um, We also, all the other schools had, you know, the hitting machines. It's that kind of metal sled with padding that football players and rugby players hit. Well, we couldn't afford one. And so, uh, again, I'm serious. We built one. We built one out of two-by-fours, out of old foam from a couch. I think our coach even gave us some leather from his boat. Um, And that's what we used to practice hitting. It worked pretty well if you were able to kind of dodge the screws sticking out while you were hitting. It was pretty good. This is the situation that we were coming from. And so as we were sitting on that bus, we were freaking out a little bit. And when we were freaking out, we were together, but we were very much alone in our thoughts. The past season, we had also gone to the finals, and we had lost to the same team that we were traveling to play against by one point in extra time. And 
that's really hard to, to take. You know, this is our last year. We need to win this game. We were so close last time, but we're just going to lose, right? They have a fancy hitting machine. Ours had better leather on it, but theirs was a fancier hitting machine. You know, and for about the next 20 minutes, we were all frozen with the what ifs and the but theys, you know, these really defeating questions and thoughts. The big thing that we were struggling with is we were frozen by our past defeat and by our unknown future. What does success and defeat look like in our lives? Are these areas that God is a part of? Or is this situations where we have to do it on our own? The other night, Leah and I were watching, uh, maybe you've seen it, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee. Have you seen that show on Netflix? Um, basically the premise, yep. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld is the host and he picks up another comedian and they get coffee. It's th that simple. Uh, it's all in the title. And he picks up a comedian, he's talking with him, and this comedian says, you know, I think it's just 100% luck that we got to where we are. We are famous because of luck. Someone else could have been discovered. 100% luck in all of this. And Jerry has a really interesting response to that. He says, no, that's not true at all. I put in the effort. I put in the time. When do I get the accolades that I deserve? So often when we look at our life, the success and the defeat, we think it is all on ourselves the same way that Jerry does. Right? It is on me. I am in control of my destiny. If I succeed, I get the accolades. If I fail, it's on me as well. On the flip side, a lot of spiritual people will say, okay, I know God is a part of my life somehow, I can very clearly see that he is working in my life, but only in the good times. When my life is successful, when I'm doing good things, God is there, God must value my life, he must love me, but when I'm struggling or when I'm defeated, God's far, far away. So which is it? Which one is true about life? What happens when we look at seasons of success and seasons of defeat in our lives? Is God a part of it? Is it on us? That's basically what Psalm 21 is all about this morning. And I would like to look at three areas, specifically in Psalm chapter 21. The first is God in our past. The second is God in our future. And the third is when it feels like God isn't there at all. Psalm 21 is a giant chiasm. Okay, I've just been talking for five minutes and you're sitting there like, you've already lost me. What's a chiasm? That's, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Maybe you've heard Todd say this word before. Maybe you've read it somewhere. Maybe you're like, no clue, no clue. Well, a chiasm is a very simple concept and it is a form of poetry. Chiasm is a Greek word, and it basically means X-pattern. Okay, X-pattern. And what a poet would do is they would take verses, and rather than rhyming the words, they would rhyme the themes in order to prove one emphasis or truth. The simple pattern is this. It's A, B, 
C, B1, A1. Okay? A, B, C, B1, A1. A and A1, they would link. It would be something that they agree on or disagree on. For example, they might say something about the sun and then A1 something about the moon, but they're linked in some way. Okay? They're similar themes. B and B1 would do the exact same thing. They would link on themes and repetition, and that leaves C in the very middle. And C is the emphasis. It is the truth. If we use our modern vernacular, it is the thesis statement. It is the slogan. It's the hashtag moment. It is everything. Every single line points to C. Okay, chiasm. Very, very simple. Psalm 21 is a giant chiasm of reflecting themes and repetition, and all of that is done to get to the one big truth. Verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 21 make up the first section. Let me read it for you this morning. O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with the blessings of good things. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you place upon him. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence. Before moving on, I think we need to clarify one thing from this section. What you desire is not the same as what you crave. Okay, what you desire is not the same as what you crave. An important thing as we read ancient texts like this, this was written in about the year 1000 BC. Um, our English language falls short. It is a pretty awful language because we don't have a lot of good words to describe ancient concepts. It falls short for us. When we see the word heart in verse 2, we think about romantic feelings, all the sappy emotions that we store in there during Valentine's Day. We think of anything that we crave, anything that we are attracted to, all of that stuff. Following me? Heart, right? We understand that we have a biological heart that keeps us alive, but we would kind of say, you know, my heart of hearts is where my romantic feelings are kept. But a 21st century North American wasn't writing Psalm chapter 21. An ancient Israelite was. And for them, the heart is not where you keep your sappy romantic feelings around Valentine's Day. That was kept somewhere very, very different. It sounds a little bit weird, but follow along with me for a second. For an ancient Israelite, uh, you kept all of your romantic, sappy feelings in your bowels. Okay, super romantic, right? Yeah. It's, it's a really strange concept, but that's where they thought it was kept. In your bowels, it, like literally in your intestines. And so, if we look at another example, 1 Kings chapter 3, it says, her bowels yearned for her son. Yeah. 
Sure. That is where sappy emotional feelings are kept. That is where cravings are kept, attractions, not in your heart. So when we are reading verse chapter, uh, verse 2, we need to understand that they are not talking about that type of heart, okay? Instead, they are talking about the Israelite heart from the year 1000. And for an Israelite, they understood the heart to not be where your emotions were, but to be where you made decisions, Your heart was where you made decisions either with wisdom or avoiding wisdom. If we look at a really famous verse still in the Psalms, Psalm chapter 51, maybe you're familiar with it. It's, create in me a clean heart, O God. When we read that again in English, we would say, you know, that must mean, God, help me to love good things. Help me to be good in how I love. But again, that's the English definition. The Israelite definition of that verse, create in me a clean heart, is God, help me to make clean and good decisions. Help me to make clean and good decisions. So with this understanding, verse 2 has a lot less to do with what we crave And instead has more to do with what we need for a good life with God. It is making good decisions with God in our life. Verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 21 can be summarized by this phrase. Verses 1 to 6, the first section of the chiasm, are past scenarios of praise. Past scenarios of praise. If you go home today, you open up your Bible to Psalm 21, you can see for yourself all of the ways that David is praising God for the victories and successes in his past. God, in your strength, you gave me victory. Through your riches, you gave me blessings. In your presence, you gave me joy. Verses 1 to 6 are all praises to God for past successes in David's life. Nearly half of the chapter is simple praises because of his past. David recognized his heart's desire. He told God what it was. And now he is praising God for all of the blessings that he has experienced in his life. What do our prayers look like? Let's spend a little bit of time looking introspectively. What do our prayers look like? Are they nearly half filled with praises for all of the good that God has done in our lives? Or are they filled with trivial requests and cravings? What do our prayers look like? Are we simply praising God for who He is or do we spend the majority of time asking for more? I mean, I'm not saying that there's not a time to ask God. David clearly had a desire in his heart. He asked God for it, and then he praised him for the successes that he experienced. But are we so focused on having more that we forget all the good that God has already given us? David recognized that our lives are split into three categories. Past, present, and future. 
And David understood that in the present, we have the opportunity to praise God for what he has done in our past. But what about the future? If verses 1 to 6 in the chiasm are past scenarios of praise, then verses 8 to 13 can be summed up as future scenarios of prayer. Future scenarios of prayer. Let's read verses 8 to 13 together. Your hand will find out all of your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. Their offspring you will destroy from the earth and their descendants from amongst the Son of Man. Though they intended evil against you and devised a plot, they will not succeed. For you will make them turn their back. You will aim with your bowstrings at their faces. Be exalted, O Lord. In your strength we will sing and praise your power. Verses 8 to 13 are future scenarios of prayer. For David, David is spending this portion of the chapter praying to God for future victory. Okay, he spent the first half of the chapter praising God for the victory he has experienced, and now he is looking to the future and praying to God that that will continue. David starts by acknowledging God for all of the ways that he has been successful. He is remembering who God is, and now he is looking again, as I said, to the future. More specifically, David is trusting that God was victorious, will be victorious, and is always successful because he is God. The important thing here is that David understands just how closely his plans and God's plans line up. If we look at verses 8 and 9, it's I'm going to read it uh, with a slight change in emphasis just to really drive this home. Verse 8 and 9, God's hand will find out all of God's enemies. God's right hand will find out those who hate God. God will make them as a fiery oven in the time of God's anger. The Lord will swallow them up in His wrath and fire will devour them. For David... God's victory is his victory. For David, God's victory is his victory. David is praying to God for God's future success, for God's victory in the future, because for David, when God wins, he wins. And that's only possible if David's plans are in line with God's plans. If they are going in different directions, it is not true that if God wins, David wins. They need to be going in the same direction. When God wins, David wins. And that's only possible if David knows God's plan and then aligns his plan with God's. This is where prayer comes in. There's a famous Catholic writer named Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen is... 
If you haven't heard of him, you need to look up some of his books. When he talks about prayer, he says this, prayer is perpetual communion with God. Prayer is perpetual communion with God. The more we pray, the more our will, our plans, and our desires are transformed into God's plans and desires. The more our will becomes God's will, the more our heart's desires stop being cravings and start being filled with godly wisdom. And when that happens, when we align our plan with God's plan, when God wins, we win. This is how we ensure that our heart's desires are not cravings but are wise decisions. We need to allow God to transform our plans, our lives, and our desires into God's. Let's recap really quickly. Verses 1 to 6 of the chiasm can be summarized as past scenarios of praise. David is recognizing all of the ways that God has been working in his life and he is praising God because of that. He is not using his North American heart, the idea that I'm going to ask God for my cravings. He instead uses his Israelite heart. God, I am going to align my plans with your plans and I'm going to ask for wise decisions and things that are ultimately life-giving plans. You see, when we are in charge of the decision-making, when we are in charge of making those plans, uh, we are in charge of the interpretation of what a craving is. Some cravings can be good, some can be bad. We are in charge of that. But when we stop looking at it as a craving and we start looking at it as, a, as God's plan for our life, God is in charge of that and God is always going to pick great things for your life. As we allow God's plans to become our plans, we can pray to God for future victory. The second section of the chiasm, verses 8 to 13, are summarized as future scenarios of prayer. Victory is what we can expect and what we can look for. We can look at victory in our lives, victory in our workplaces, victory in our families, because we have seen how successful and how victorious God has been in our past, and we can trust that God will be victorious in our future. But what if it feels like God isn't there? What if it feels like it's been months or years since the past victory in your life through God? And what if it feels like it's going to be months or years until your next victory in God? What do we do then? What do we do when it feels like we are surrounded by people, but we are so alone in our defeat? As I read Psalm 21, I became fascinated by one word. And for some of you, some of your Bible translations might not even include this word in the reading. This word is found in verse chapter 3, and the word is sila. Sila. 
The word sila is an unknown Hebrew word. Scholars have been trying to figure out the definition of it for hundreds of years. They're working and trying to decode the definition so that they can understand why the biblical writers would include it in so many areas of the Psalms. According to some scholars, the definitions could be that sila means to hang in the balance. It could mean to pause and to reflect. Or it could mean to lift up praise. The one thing that all scholars agree on is that sila is most likely a musical direction for a band. Okay, so the band is reading because the psalms are primarily music. Okay, so the band has their sheet music in front. They are singing or playing instruments. And when they see the word sila, they are to respond. Some scholars think that the response is to hang in the balance. That the entire band is to pause what they're doing so that the congregation can lift up loud and joyful praise on their own. Others think that maybe everyone hangs in the balance and this is a total time to reflect on who God is. Other scholars think this is a time for the instruments to pause and that the singers are then to lift up louder praise and still others think it is the opposite, that it is the time for the instruments to get loud and joyful in their worship to God while the voices pause. Sila, to hang in the balance, to pause, and to lift up praise. As I was looking at this word, I found hanging in the balance was a really interesting definition for that word. To hang in the balance. And as I was reflecting this week, I wondered, um, have you ever felt like that? Have we ever felt like our lives were hanging in the balance? Like maybe you had walked into a tunnel in your life where you uh, were there alone in the very center. It was pitch black. It was dark. You couldn't see where you entered. You couldn't see where the exit was. Your life is hanging in the balance. You're stuck in the middle with no clue when it's going to end. And that's a Sila moment. This moment where you are hanging in the balance and have no idea what's going on. When your life is hanging in the balance, you may feel stuck. You may feel alone. You probably don't know how to escape it. As I was sitting on that school bus in grade 12 the last year of high school, traveling to our last rugby game. I think that was a trivial example of a Sela moment. We were all there together, but we felt very alone. We were stuck and frozen by our past defeat and by our unknown future. When we were in that situation, your mind begins to spin a little. You know, our season was awful. Why are we even in the championships? We're going to lose it immediately. We have, like, it's, it's not going to work. It's going to be awful. It's a waste of time. Okay? We have de- been defeated in our past. Why are we even trying in our future? It's a wasted game. 
I think when we are in the midst of a Sila moment, two things can commonly happen. The first is that our memories become short and they become foggy. And the second is that it feels like our prayers are meaningless. As I was sitting on that school bus, my memory was short and it was foggy. I was sitting there thinking, our season has been awful. We have to push a truck down a dirt road. Like, it is so bad. It, it's been awful. We have had people injured. We have lost games. And you just go on this spinning cycle of, it's so bad. It's, it's been awful. There has been no successes in my past but that's not true. Okay, we lost last year by one point. One point. I'd say that's a pretty good success. We had a great season with a great record. We had beat our rival school 43-3. to That is a really good thing to be thankful for, to have noticed and recognized. But when you're in that SELA moment, your memory gets really short and it gets really foggy. If verses 1 to 6 are past scenarios of praise, we lose all ability to recognize any moment worthy of our praise. I remember talking to some of our youth leaders last year. We had been having a bit of a difficult night with one of our students, and we were feeling pretty defeated. You know, We were talking and saying, I... We've been working so hard with this student and it's just not getting, it's not going anywhere. Okay, we, what do we do? I remember one of the youth leaders, uh, you know, kind of said, I'm I'm done. All of this work that I've been putting in, it seems like it's going in reverse. It's, nothing's happening. You know, this was a Sila moment where your memory becomes short and it becomes foggy. Because for the next 30 minutes, we were able to talk about all of the victories that we've had that week, the week before, the month before, that entire semester. And we went for 30 minutes talking about all of those successes. And you know what? A large majority of them were with that student that we were feeling so defeated with. Our memories become short and they become very foggy. When you feel like your life is hanging in the balance, be careful. Keep your memories long and keep them clear so that you can recognize all of the blessings in your life that God has given. The other thing that can happen in a Sila moment is that it feels like our prayers are meaningless. We are praying to God, God, give me future victory, give me future victory. We are praying and praying and praying but we're not seeing any results. We look back and our our memory is short and foggy so we don't see any situations of victory. We are looking to the future and we are seeing no hope that anything is going to happen in the positive. You know, it really feels like we're always going to be one point away from victory. And so our prayers feel meaningless. They feel pointless. Why am I even bothering with this? When we find our lives hanging in the balance, our memories get short and foggy and our prayers seem pointless. 
And that makes us feel stuck. That makes us feel alone. That makes us feel like we are never going to escape this situation. But there's very good hope. Psalm 21 is filled with hope in this giant chiasm of repeating themes and repetition of poetry. There is hope for defeating sila moments of feeling like your life is hanging in the balance. And if you want to know how to defeat a sila moment, use sila. If you want to defeat a sila moment, use sila. Sila means to pause. It means to lift up praise. When we pause, force yourself to look for those past scenarios of success. All of those moments that you have been blessed with through God, they're there. I promise you they are there. Force yourself to make your memory long and clear. Use Sila. The other thing we can do is we can find intentional times to lift up praise to God. The really exciting thing that naturally happens is when we force ourselves in the midst of our struggle to pause and to reflect. It may take a little bit of time, but we will find those past scenarios of success. And the natural reaction to finding those scenarios is praise. And that's how we get to the future. Lifting up praise to God. When you're in a Sila moment, when your life is hanging in the balance, use Sila. Music team, I'm just wrapping up now. Remind yourself in that moment, as hard as it is to remind yourself that God is in your past, that God is in you in this moment, He is with you, and God will be with you in the future. God is there during your Sila moments because, in fact, if you have desires in your life and they are from God, that is proof that God is with you. God has given you desires from His heart. That is proof that He has worked in your past. When we are stuck in a Sila moment, we should use Sila. How can we be sure of this, okay? I'm just a person up here standing here talking. How can you be sure that you can trust that God is going to be there in your future? How can you really be sure that God is active in your life and that God has His best intentions for you? That's the center of the chiasm. Okay? All of these verses are pointing to our one big moment of truth, that one big emphasis, and that's verse 7. All of these are looking to verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. 